If you missed last week, we're talking about this right here, the fight for the altar. God's given us a mandate this year, and what is that? Can everybody tell me? Every home and altar. And so what that means is that we're making our hearts and our homes and our church a resting place for the presence of God. A place where the presence of God can come and dwell and live in your home. For God to come into your life and remodel it and do things in your life the way that he wants to do them. Like, oh, we're going to paint this wall this color. This flooring is getting changed out. We're going to rearrange the furniture over here. Actually, as a matter of fact, that furniture has got to go to the dump. We're bringing in new furniture. We're going we're gonna to add on over here. It's like we're giving, we're saying, God, this is, we, this is what we want you to do. We want you to come into our lives and to our homes and make it your place. Not just saying, God, come in and you fit in around what we've got going on. No, you, God, you come in and you take over. This is, this is your home. And we want to fit into what you have in mind. God, we want you to come in and bring order to our chaos. We want you to come in and arrange our lives to bring you glory. That's what it means to make every home an altar, to make your heart an altar. And I think that if you're going to build an altar for worship and sacrifice to the Lord, for his presence to come and live and dwell, then then it's not something that you should do half-heartedly. It's not something that you should do nonchalantly. It's not something that you should do recklessly or without abandon. It deserves being intentional and deliberate. And if we're going to be intentional and deliberate about it, then we've got to, to start viewing our lives through an eternal kingdom lens. Instead of just looking at life through the lens of physical realities, the primary lens that we need to look at our lives and the world around us is through spiritual realities, through that lens. Everything that we see is temporal. It's subject to change, right? But the invisible things are the eternal things. And it's through that lens that we're able to see what's really at the root behind the things that we see in our world today, the darkness that we see, the the brokenness that we see, the depravity that we see. If we see through the spiritual lens, we don't just see those things on the surface, but we see what's at the very heart and at the very root of those things. But also if we look through a spiritual lens, this, this eternal kingdom lens, we don't just see what's at the root of the problem. We also see the source of what's going to heal everything. And we are, can be filled with like this hopeful expectation from God that he has a vision for redemption, that he has a, re- a vision for salvation, that he has a vision for your home, that he has a, a mission for your home. Uh, recently, I heard someone talking about this, and I really liked the way that they articulated it. And uh, it, w- it, w- it was Kirk Cameron. And, um, and I heard him talking about this, and he was talking about how if we just see things through a physical lens and try to fix the world through a physical lens without the power and the presence of God, without the power and the person of the gospel 
then we're not going to be successful. He, he, he called this like um, Christless conservatism. If we just are trying to, to govern our lives and change the world through conservative values, but it's absent of the person and the power of the gospel, then yes, you may see some things in your life improve, but your soul will never be healed. And I'll just tell you guys, I love like guys like Jordan Peterson and listening to these like deep thinkers. Ben Shapiro, Dennis Prager. Like when I think about these guys and I hear a lot of what they have to say, I'm like, man, I agree with that. Oh, that's really good. Oh, that's, mm, that's spot on. Not everything that they say, but a lot of things that they say. And so I think of those people like that as allies and they have great ideas, but conservatism alone leaves us as men with good advice, but are still stuck in Adam's prison of sin and death. And we're still in prison, and we're unable to do anything with the good advice that can change any kind of spiritual reality. And the spiritual realities that are unseen are the things that are behind and move all the things in the physical realities. And like we talked about Gideon last week, as Christians, we, it's God's calling us out of the wine press. And, and it's time to come out of the wine press armed with the word of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit because these are the only things that are powerful enough to make any kind of eternal difference and change in people's lives. And in the power of, in the name of Jesus, we need to advance the gospel now in this time, not tuck our head between our knees, not stay silent on issues, not cry in our Christian Chick-fil-A soup and just wait on the rapture to come and just saying, I just can't wait for Jesus to rapture us out of here. Listen, I can't. It's going to be a great day when the Lord returns. I'm looking forward to it. But there's work to do in the meantime. It's not time to go hide in the caves, in the hills somewhere, and hide away. It's time to take the gospel and the truth and redeem a dying generation through revival and awakening. Today, I just want to return back to Judges chapter 6 and pick back up with this story of Gideon. And let's just do a quick recap, and then we're going to pick back up in the story here. Israel had been under the leadership of Joshua, and they had entered the territory that God had promised to the nation of Israel long ago. They finally had entered into it, but it wasn't like they just came into it, and then it was just like God said, well, here it is. You can just, you know, no, it was like now they have to subdue it. And so Joshua and the Israelites have to defeat 31 kings, and by the power of God, they are able to do that. And there's really no other explanation. If you go and read these stories, like the story of like defeating Jericho, what, what is that? Only the power of God. That's a miracle story. And so Joshua and the Israelites defeat these 31 kings and they subdue the land that God had promised to them, this territory. And now they're living in homes that they hadn't built and they're reaping from vineyards that they hadn't planted. And it's going good. 
They were obedient and they were living in the blessing of obedience. Unfortunately, Judges chapter 2 tells us that there arose a generation who knew not the Lord nor his works. And they left the Lord, so they find themselves in the proverbial pig pen, very much like the pig pen that the prodigal son found himself in, in Luke chapter 15. And, and so when you're disobedient to the Lord, you don't get to reap the reward of obedience. So for seven years, these outside nations, the Midianites and the Amalekites, they dominated and oppressed the Israelites. And the Israelites end up they, they fled to the hills to hide in caves. And the, the Midianites would come in and right at the time of harvest, and they would, they would come and they would take all the crops. And in the spring, when all the, the livestock were reproducing and, and giving birth, they would come and they would come and take their livestock, and they would do this year after year after year. And so... Some of you might be thinking, J.D., how could this happen? After all that God did in delivering Israel from the, the slavery of Egypt, they had been enslaved for 430 years, and God delivered them from that. And then they, in the wilderness, God sustained them in the wilderness for decades. And, and then they come into the promised land, and they defeat 31 kings. And, and all of this, how could the people of God turn their backs on God and forget what he had done for them? That would never happen to us. Yeah? Really? Listen, America has seen about 300 years of just in, in the 300 years. I know we're not 300 years old yet, but we've been here for 300 years. And, and over that time, we have seen great awakening and great awakening and great awakening and move of God an outpouring of the Spirit. And we have a heritage. We have a strong spiritual heritage. But if you look around right now, and you look at the statistics, we are living in post-Christian America. And our culture now is very much like that of the Israelites in Judges chapter 6. How does this kind of thing happen? How does the enemy... See, how is he able to take ground away from his people, from, from the people of God? How does a culture like ours have such a shift in just like 50 years or so? 50 plus years, 60 years maybe. Here's a big part of it. In, in just four generations, you can see it all disintegrate. I believe that this is what happened to, to the Israelites, and it's what's happened here in America. You... you in times of prosperity and overflow, it's really easy for us as human beings to just kind of like go, God, thanks for all this. We got it from here. And in that kind of attitude, parents don't impart to their children the the priority and the importance and the centeredness of God and his church. It's not as much of a priority. It's not as central as it ought to be. And so those kids, they grow up, and now it's, a, it's even less of a priority for them as they're having children. Then those kids grow up, and now they make it no priority. 
God has no priority. There's no centeredness there. His gathering with the church, what's that for? What's that, you know, well, Grandpa, I heard these stories of great-grandpa used to be a preacher. Great-grandpa used to, like, uh, read his Bible all the time. Great-grandpa used to, like, spend hours and hours in prayer. Great-grandpa used to, he's got these miracle stories. He's got these outpouring stories. But the great-grandkids don't even... They're not, they're not even in church. And that's not their fault. It's their parents' fault. And then those kids have kids, and they grow up with no concept of God and no like centralness or importantness of, of his church any, any longer. It's what's happened with Israel, and it's what ha- is happening in America. And so what's the point? The point is, is that today's priorities impact tomorrow's generation. The things that you prioritize, the things that you circle your life around, that that your life orbits around, that will impact your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. And it goes both ways. It goes both ways. I'm so thankful for the spiritual heritage in my family, of my mom and dad making God and church and the Bible and hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit, making it a priority. And I'm so thankful for your parents, and I'm so thankful for their parents. And, I'm, and I look at my children, and I know they're not perfect, but man, I look at, their, I look at them and they love Jesus. And I go, praise God. Praise God. So the Israelites, they're at this place, and they're literally starving to death. So they, they begin to like come back to the Lord. They begin to pray. They begin to cry out to God. So the Lord sent them a prophet, and the, Lord, and, and the prophet told them, hey, all this has happened because you turned your back on God, and, and you started taking on the customs of the godless nations around you, and, and you integrated, and you merged with these cultures. This is why that you find yourselves here. And then the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and he begins to speak to Gideon through the spiritual lens, through the eternal kingdom lens, through the lens of the the voice of God to him, God's identity and his destiny over Gideon. And 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 here's what I have you do. Once you stand up with me today, because we're gonna we're gonna read this bit, this passage. These are some of the verses that we read last week, and they're they're pieced together. Uh, Judges chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. We're not going to read all of it, but we're going to read these bits here together. We're gonna, let's read this aloud together as we honor God's word. Ready? This is, again, this is the angel of the Lord speaking to Gideon. And as we say it out of our mouths today, this is God's word to us today as well. Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Interesting thing about Gideon here is that he doubts what the angel of the Lord is telling him at first. For, for, For when I say at first, I mean... The angel of the Lord is saying a lot of things, and he's doing a lot of things, and Gideon's just not really sure about it. 
but he's having a hard time believing it because all Gideon can do is look through the physical lens, not the spiritual lens. But I want to say this. The cool thing is this, is that Gideon, although he's having difficulty believing this is possible, what he's hearing, he doesn't run away. He sticks around. He doesn't understand it all. He's not sure if he believes it, but he doesn't bail. He just says, I'm just going to stick around and listen to more. I, I, I'm, he argues with the angel of the Lord a little bit, but he, he doesn't run away. He sticks around. And Gideon, he could have ignored what he was being told, and he could have kept hiding out in his cave, but instead he took these baby steps of faith toward being the courageous leader that God was calling him out to be. Hey, 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 I'm not sure about what you're saying. I'm not sure if what you're saying can be true. You're calling me out to be a courageous wartime leader. I'm not sure about that. I don't see how it's possible. But I'm going to still respond with a little bit of faith that I do have. I don't see how, but I'm still going to say yes. And I think that oftentimes that we can be in the same place as Gideon. And I would just want to encourage you, if you don't feel like a mighty hero, if you don't feel like a mighty man of valor, just don't run away right away. Just stick around. Just keep listening to hearing what the voice of God is telling you. Just keep reading the Word of God. Just keep listening to the Spirit. Keep having conversations with your friends who discern well. And then respond. Even if it's, you just, I just, I don't have a lot of faith. I'm really not sure. But, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to just take this one little step. Do it. Do it. God's calling you toward courageous leadership in this hour that we're living in today. You may not feel like it. You may feel like Gideon, like you've got the wrong guy, but just stick around. Don't run away and just take a baby step at the very least. Now, for some of you, you're like, hey, I'm ready. Let's go. I'm loaded for bear already. You know, I'm prayed up. I'm read up. My, the, the, the holes, <laughs> if you see the holes in my jeans... That's because I've been on my knees before the Lord. Let's go. But if you're not there, just go ahead and determine in your heart that you're going to give your yes to the Lord, even if you have a hard time believing it all. God, my yes belongs to you already before you've even asked. God's answer is always courageous leadership. That's what he was calling Gideon's toward, and it's what he's calling uh, us towards, and Gideon is taking these steps toward it. This is where we're going to pick up today. Verse 24, Gideon builds an altar to the Lord. He builds an, he recognizes what the Lord, like, okay, I recognize this is the angel of the Lord. I'm going to respond to this. And he builds an altar to the Lord, and he, he presents a sacrifice it's a sign of reverence. It's a sign of allegiance. And he names the altar Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. And you'd think that everything would be all good then. You'd think that God would be like, hey, Gideon, thank you. 
thank you for building this altar to me. Thank you for making this sacrifice. Thank you for honoring and worshiping me. Uh, I really like the name of the altar. You know, you did a really good job naming that. All right, so, so what we're going to do now is we're going to go in and we're going to develop our, our, battles, our battle plan, our strategy of how we're going to take out the Midianites. But that's not what the Lord says to him. Why? We're going to see here in just a second. Gideon's just built this altar. He's made the sacrifice. And the very next thing that the Lord says is this. In Judges chapter 6, verse 25, he says, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old, and pull down your father's altar to Baal. And cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. So the altar of Baal, it's an altar to make sacrifices to a false god. To a wicked, evil spirit. Asherah pole, also, I, I, I don't know, I, I haven't seen any kind of like historic, artistic like drawings of what an Asherah pole might look like. But in my mind, I'm thinking of like, like a... Um, yeah, like a totem pole. Something carved up, looked in like, you know, something that represented a God that they worshiped. And he's saying, I want you to tear these things down. I know that you just made a sacrifice to me, but I want you to go and I want you to tear down the, the, the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. In verse 26, then... Build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary. So in the highest place in, in the region, in the highest place where, where everybody can see, you're going to tear down this altar of Baal and you're going to erect an altar to me. And you're going to use the Asherah pole and you're going to cut it up and you're going to use it as kindling for the altar for this sacrifice that you're going to make to me. Because we're not going to have anything left over. You're not going to take the Asherah pole and just kind of set it over here to the side for another day. No, we're going to cut the thing up and burn it because we're done with it. The reason God was raising up Gideon to be a courageous wartime leader was because the ultimate fight for the Israelites was not against the Midianites. It was not against the Amalekites. It wasn't for something that was in the scene realm. It was for the altar of the Lord, which, which, which is, means it's something for the unseen realm. The battle, the fight was for the altars and for which they represented the things in the unseen realm. It's why it's so important for us to see our lives and see our world through the spiritual lens. It's easy for us in 21st century America to get our eyes on the Midianites of our time and the Amalekites of our time, to get our eyes on the economy, to get our eyes on the election, to get our eyes on, on Hunter's laptop, to get our eyes on uh, whatever, even just our micro challenges that we deal with in our own private lives. The bigger fight is for the altar of the Lord. Yes. Whose altar is going to be allowed to stand in your home? Yes. Is it going to be the altar of Baal? Or is it going to be the altar of the Lord? God's calling us. He's calling you. He's calling me in this hour to courageous leadership. Why? Because the altar of Baal must be torn down in order to erect the altar of the Lord. 
to build the altar in your heart, to build the altar in your home, to build the altar in this church. Yeah, 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 but J.D., why was it so important? Like, I mean, Gideon had already erected uh, an altar, and he had made a sacrifice. Why, why wasn't that good enough? Why did he have to go and tear down the altar of Baal? Or why couldn't he just erect another altar of the Lord? Why was it so important? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. If I remember in Exodus, the Lord said to his people, you shall have no other gods before me. I looked. Listen, guys, this is not about politics. We, we, have, we have said in the church, many people in the church have said, well, we don't want to talk about that because it's a political issue. No, 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 no. It's not a political issue. It's a spiritual issue. And it plays itself out in the, real, in the world of politics. But we, we have to stop being afraid of having these conversations. And we have to stop being afraid and keeping our mouth shut on these issues. I looked on the White House's Instagram a day or two. And right there on the White House, right there in the very center hanging off the balcony, is the pride flag. And it's flanked by two American flags. And I'm like, no, no, no. Um, that flag does not fly and flank the American flag. And this, this is not about America. I'm, I'm saying, I'm making this point. Just like that flag, nor any flag, should should flank the American flag hanging from the White House. I don't care if it's a pride flag or a Canadian flag or a Mexican flag or a Chinese flag or a Russian flag or a Ukraine flag or a British flag or an Irish flag. It doesn't flank the United States flag hanging from the White House. So take that principle and apply it to the greater reality of who God has called us to be. The altar of Baal cannot stand and flank the altar of the Lord. It must be torn down. It, it, it cannot even be allowed to still stay standing. It must be completely dis, dis, deconstructed. We can't just put it off here to the side because maybe we will return to it another day. It must be demolished. The Asherah pole must be cut up and burned. There are two spirits at work in this generation today. John calls it the spirit of error versus the spirit of truth. And another way to say it is the spirit of this age, which is a deceptive spirit, versus the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of revival. And these same two spirits were at work in Judges chapter 6, and these same two spirits are at work in our day, and these same two spirits are even in the church because we allow it. During Gideon's time, Israel was the they were the covenant people of God, but they had syncretized their devotion to Yahweh with their devotion to Baal. They wanted to fly both flags. They wanted to have both altars. What's the deal with Baal? Baal is, is the representation of the spirit that, that had the dominant influence in their culture. Over the course of time, 
the influence of surrounding nations and the, and the influence of their idols and their, their idol worship and their gods, they began to influence Israel. Instead of Israel being an influence in the region, the region was an influence on Israel. And they'd come under the oppression, not just of the Amalekites and the Midianites, they had come under the spiritual oppression of the spirit of Baal, a wicked, evil spirit in the unseen realm. That's why God's like, it's got to come down. This is not a fight about the Amalekites. It's not a fight about the Midianites. It's a fight for the altar. It's a fight for what the altars represent. When you read through the Old Testament, Baal kind of takes on some different names and forms, but it's really the same spirit. And if we look through it, look at it through a spiritual lens and see what we're experiencing today in our very own culture, in our own education systems, in our colleges, in our elementary and high schools, in uh, the, the news cycle, on social media, in entertainment, in, uh, in corporations, in our, in, even in our own households. These are all just physical manifestations of what's happening in the spiritual realm. And that same spiritual influence that was at work in Gideon's day is at work still today. And it's the same spirit that God's people are having to confront. Why? Because the spirit of Baal is a counterfeit alternative spirit to the Holy Spirit, the spirit of revival. What does Baal stand for? What what is Baal's name as a verb? It means to marry. When we think about marriage, we think about two becoming one. And so Baal, his whole, the whole spirit of Baal is about, oh, we're going to be one. This is not just a side thing. This is not just something that you can kind of give your attention to. No, 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 no. It's going to be all-consuming. Baal's name as a noun means dominant one, master, owner. And so God was, or excuse me, Baal was, was, was thought of and, and was regarded as the God of the storm or as the God of rain. Why is that important? Because when you live in an agrarian society and you're a farmer and nearly everybody is in some way or another, and, and you are like trying to raise crops and you're trying to raise livestock and you need rain and you need storms to come. Because your crops need to grow so that you can live off of them and you can sell them and you can take them and feed them to your livestock and your livestock can grow strong and reproduce and then your, your, your kingdom can expand and your control and your security and your prosperity can expand. So worshiping Baal, the god of the storm, is very appealing. It makes sense. So while Baal was called the god of the storm or rain, the issue of rain touched three primary issues. Baal was the bringer of rain, which meant the Baal, he, it, mean, it means that Baal brought success. Baal brought prosperity. Baal brought fertility. Why is that a counterfeit spirit to the spirit of revival, to the Holy Spirit? Well, all throughout the scriptures, we God uses this picture of rain, of what he's wanting to do in his people and on the earth. Zechariah chapter 10 says, Ask the Lord for rain in the season of rain. 
Acts chapter 3, all through the book of Acts, it talks about the reign of the Spirit. And it says, pray that there's repentance. So there's, there's times that may come. There's times of refreshing rain that may come from the Lord. Hosea chapter 10 talks about the rains of righteousness. Revival is always typified by rain, but Baal is the God that's connected to the storms that can bring rain, success, and fertility. It's a counterfeit spirit to the Spirit of God. So think about the modern equivalent of Baal. Think about a spiritual influence that has a dominant message in our culture today, Focused on climate. Focused on the economy. Focused on sexuality. Does this sound familiar to anybody? You serve Baal in order to control and affect the climate. In order for you to have prosperity in a thriving economy. And it's all centered around... Sexuality. In the Old Testament, ways that you got Baal to answer you were cutting. The um, sexual perversion. Child sacrifice. What are some of the modern day versions of that? Trans surgery. Emasculation of men, toxic masculinity, sexual permissiveness, abortion. These are all manifesting in our generation, and it's just the modern version of the same spirit of Baal. And if we look at it only through the physical lens, what we're going to see is just the people that, that have been deceived. Some of them willfully and some of them not. But they're deceived and they're affected by this. So we need to constantly remind ourselves that our fight is not with people. It's not with flesh and blood. We are not fighting against people. Jesus came and he lived a sinless life and he died a selfless death. And he had a glorious resurrection in order to redeem captive men from sin and out from underneath the influence of this wicked spirit. That includes all the people that are under the, the perversive spirit of the spirit of Baal. And it includes me. And it includes you. Praise God. We are all in need of a Savior. I'm no better. I'm just living in, in the reality of my spiritual re redemptive truth of what Jesus did. The people who are deceived right now... Their spiritual destiny, God, God has the same spiritual destiny for them as he has for me. They're just trapped right now. They're imprisoned right now. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people in the church who aren't addressing this as a spiritual issue because they're afraid that it will come across as, well, this won't be sympathetic or this won't seem empathetic or it seems like we're going to be mean-spirited or hate-filled. Let me ask you this, how empathetic is it, how sympathetic is it, how loving is it to have the keys in your hand to an entire prison full of people who have been pardoned, but you don't go and tell them that, and you don't go and lock the doors? And you say, well, it might seem like I'm being ugly or mean or hate-filled to tell you this truth, 
So I'm just going to send you a care package. I hope you enjoy prison. Here's some cookies. I just want to make your life comfortable while you're behind bars. Enjoy prison. Listen, Jesus didn't come to make prisoners comfortable. He came to set the captives free. That includes me. The problem is, is that just like Israel, the church has synchronized or syncretized the, the, the spirit of Baal with the, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of revival. And, and we will say, well, we're here on Sundays where we're going to worship God. The preacher's preaching a long time, but I haven't left. Uh, so, the, you know, the beans on the stove are just going to have to burn. It'll be fine. But you know what? Um, that's on Sunday. But on Monday, we're putting our energy other places. And we're putting our ideologies in other places, and our thoughts, and our politics, and the way that we raise our children, and what we think about sexuality, and, and our finances, and even our views on gender, and our views on life. And we put all those things on the altar of Baal. We've got whole denominations that used to be rooted in, like, revival movements. If you look at, if you look at the Methodist church, it has an incredible spiritual heritage. The, 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 The roots and the foundation of the Methodist church were built on the altar that was burning with revival fires. But if you look at the Methodist church today in the Western Hemisphere, in America, they've gone off the rails. And I look at them today and I see that the altar of the Lord has now been replaced with the altar of Baal. And I think about their ancestors and their founders, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, and I think those guys have to be rolling over in their graves right now. We've got whole denominations walking away from Orthodox faith saying things like, um, the Bible. It's an archaic book. It doesn't really mean what it says. And we've got to accommodate some things in order so that we can have a seat at the table of cultural conversation. You know what that is? That's the spirit of Baal. Owner, master, dominant one. The one that says, you're going to submit in order to have a voice. And the voice that you have, that's not truth that you're speaking anyway. So I win. You're going to go hide in caves. You're going to eat bugs. You're going to not own things anymore. You're going to have far less. You're going to starve. It's the spirit of Baal, and we've allowed it into the church and syncretized with it. And when I say the church, I mean like, you know what the church is, right? I'm not talking about an institution. The church is people. It's us. It's you and I. We have these like, some of us have big altars of Baal, and some of us have little altars of Baal. But it's still an altar, and it's still there. 
That, that Baal spirit is nothing but a counterfeit spirit to the spirit of revival of what God wants to do. I want you to listen and believe this. Not only is revival and awakening possible in America, it's inevitable. Why? Because God said that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. God says that when the enemy comes in like a flood, God raises up a standard against it. God's, when, when, the, when the nighttime comes, God doesn't see it as the end of the day, but he sees it as the beginning of the dawn. He's always calling light out of darkness. And that's exactly what he did with Gideon, calling him out of the wine press towards courageous leadership. And, and, and I want to say this, you're not here by accident. God is calling you today also to take a step towards courageous leadership. God has put his spirit on the inside of you. He has put his glory on the inside of you so that there will be a massive awakening in America in our lifetime. Maybe you don't believe it. Maybe you're sitting here like Gideon. You're like, I'm not sure. Well, good. I'm glad you're still sitting here and you haven't run out the door yet. Listen, it's true. What we need to do right now is not go hide in caves. It's not for us to keep our mouths shut. But what we need to do right now is have to have hope rise up on the inside of us. Gideon was hiding in the wine press. He was trying to thresh just that little bit of wheat that he had so he wouldn't starve to death, just surviving. And all of the sudden, God's not done with the generation. God's not going to allow the altar of Baal to stand. He's not going to allow it to be reinforced. He's not going to allow it to be exalted at the expense of his own altar, at the expense of his own glory being downplayed, being ignored, and being forgotten about. Yes, the altar of Baal It did get built, but wait and see what happens when a generation responds to the call of God towards courageous leadership. These will be people who God puts his glory in who will contend, who will order the stones of the altar in due order, not our order, but his order. So have you tried to build an altar in your own way? God's like, That's not my design. That's what Gideon's first altar was. Gideon, the the first altar that he built was an altar by his design, not by God's. That's why he had to tear down the altar of Baal and reconstruct the altar of the Lord in due order, laying the stones exactly the right way. Build it right, and I will come. It's a field of dreams moment. Some of you young people were like, Kevin Costner, isn't he that guy from Yellowstone? If you build it, he will come. God comes where he's wanted. So what do we say? We want you here. You ever like going to places where you're wanted? It feels good, right? It feels good to go to places where you're wanted. But it doesn't feel so great having to go to places where you don't feel like you're wanted. Like you knock on the door and they come to the door and you're like, oh. Okay, well, um, yeah, I get, come on in. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. Uh, Just have a seat over here. So what are you doing here? (laughs) No, no, no. You want to go to places where you're wanted. So we say, Lord, we want you here. Come. Come. 
Listen, when the moment comes where we see another great outpouring, it's not just so that we can build a subculture of revival within the church. It's, it's about reviving the church in such a way that it will lead to a national awakening where we see tens of millions of souls being saved and harvested in one generation. How's this going to happen? How do you, how, how's it going to happen, you ask? God is searching for a generation of courageous leaders who will bring reformation to the church so that he can bring transformation to the culture. Here's the mandate God gave Gideon, and it's the same mandate that he has for all of us in this room. The mandate is for courageous wartime leadership in this hour. If you're a pastor, it's time to be courageous. If you're a worship leader, it's time to be courageous. If you're a life group leader, it's time to be courageous. If you uh, are a children's ministry worker, it's time to be courageous. If you're a teacher in a school, it's time to be courageous. If you're a business person, it's time to be courageous. If you work blue collar, it's time to be courageous. If you work white collar, it's time to be courageous. If you're a stay-at-home mom, it's time to be courageous. Because the mandate is twofold. Number one, tear down the altar of Baal. And number two, construct the altar of the Lord. And if we give our lives to these two things, we're going to set the stage for a greater awakening than we've ever experienced before. It's already in the heart of God. We don't have to like go to God and try to convince him of something that he's not already in. It's his idea already. Uh, he, God, God's not trying to withhold. He's trying to get a hold and get our generation's attention. The mandate for courageous leadership in this hour, it begins with deconstructing the altar of Baal and constructing the altar of the Lord. We're running out of time. We've been running out of time, so just, this is the last thing I want to say. It's time. It's time we get real with ourselves and admit if there's areas in our lives that, that we have syncretized with the spirit of Baal, that we've syncretized with the godless culture around us. But, but, but J.D., I'm not woke. I don't buy into those ideologies. Hey, that's great. That's wonderful. I'm glad. That's good. But maybe you've syncretized your heart and your life and your, your life patterns and the rhythms of your life in ways that are different But maybe the altar of Baal in your life looks like comfort or control or security or money and success. Maybe it's social influence or power. Maybe it's sexual immorality. God's calling you to make your heart and your home an altar. But before you can build the altar of the Lord, you have to identify the altar of Baal in your life and tear it down. How do you do it? This incredible word 
in order for us to take full advantage of God's marvelous gift of grace, we can't reject his gift of repentance. We don't get to accept one and reject the other. They're a package deal. It's like, you know, you go to order something on Amazon. Maybe you order a new grill for the back, backyard. And box one comes, and the driver comes up. He's like, you're going to have to sign for this. And you're like, yeah, great, I'll sign for this. He's like, now hang on, I've got another box in the, in the truck i got to go get. And you're like, well, no, 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 no. I just, I'm good with this box. I don't need the other box. Well, then you're not going to have your grill. Because the parts are in two different boxes. And we don't get to pick and choose which part of God's kingdom that we want and then the other parts that we don't want. It's not a Chinese buffet. And you're like, oh, I'm going to get the crab rangoon, but oh, I'm not going to have that broccoli. You guys can tell I'm hungry. <laughs> you got to sign for both boxes. And if you want to sign for revival and grace and supernatural power, then you have to sign up for repentance and say, God, I'm tearing down the altar of Baal. So God, wherever there are things in my life that, have, that I have idolized, that I have worshiped, that I have elevated over you, I want to tear them down, cut them up, and burn them so that I don't go back to those things. I want to deconstruct them, and I want to reorder my life and lay the stones of the altar of my life in the way that you've called for it. I want to invite you into the home of my heart and in my house, and I want you to call, make the, I want you to be the interior decorator and the contractor. And you say, this wall goes, this wall comes up. This is the paint color. This is the flooring. This is the, the, the decorations. This is the furniture. We're going we're gonna to build a sunroom over here, or this part, this is dilapidated, so we're going to tear it down. God, you come in. You have your way. Repentance is not a work of the flesh. It's a work of grace. And by his grace is where we're convicted of any unrighteousness. It's convicted of where we've had any kind of syncretation with any kind of spirit other than the spirit of God. And it's by his grace that we're able to repent. The end.